I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 86, in honor of my old friend Butch Johnson of the Dallas Cowboys, who once caught a Super Bowl catch, touchdown catch that was so spectacular, 47 yards from Roger Staubach in Super Bowl twelve, that it was painted by Leroy Neiman. Look it up. This, as always, is the un-undisputed, everything I cannot share with you during the debate show that is undisputed. And by the way, this Friday on Undisputed, Lil Wayne and 2 Chains will join us live in studio. They were so good last Friday night on Jimmy Fallon. They performed a new song called Pressure from the new album they have collaborated upon. Wayne and Chains, Friday on Undisputed. But today on episode 86 of this show, I will tell you why. The deep background as to why I did pick LeBron and the Lakers to win it all this year. And I will tell you why Killers of the Flower Moon made me cry. And I will answer a bunch of your probing, provocative questions, including if I've ever been late to the start of Undisputed or First Take or Cold Pizza or any of the live national TV shows I have been a part of. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. Yes, 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 yes. I did pick LeBron and the Lakers on Undisputed to win this year's NBA championship. I am here to tell you, even though I've been questioned on air by Keyshawn Johnson, Richard Sherman, and others, question in social interaction that we do on the show about why I made this pick, second guest, third guest, fourth guest, Nope, 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 nope. It is not to jinx LeBron. My pick is not to set up LeBron for failure. It is not to put any more pressure on LeBron than is already on his poor soul. The truth is, I just really like this basketball team. The truth is, I really love what GM Rob Palenka has done at last year's trade deadline and then through the offseason 
of building what I think is a championship basketball team. Obviously, if you watched the Tuesday night opener at Denver, the Lakers didn't quite live up to my prediction. But that's just one of 82. And I stand by my pick because once again, right on schedule, it was same time next year. They fought all the way back in that game Tuesday night at Denver just as they did four straight games against Denver in last year's Western Conference Finals. They fought back to down only four with 11 minutes left, down only three with eight minutes left. And then right on schedule, they fell apart. Or maybe right on schedule, Denver just said, no, we're better than you are, and took over the game and won it convincingly by 12. I stand by my pick because I still believe in this team. I do not believe in LeBron as the clutch closer for this team, but I don't think he needs to be. I believe in this team because I start with the ESPN ranking just before the season started of its top 100 NBA players. Only one team, only one in the entire NBA had two players in the top 10, albeit at ninth and 10th. Ninth was LeBron, 10th was Anthony Davis. Two in the top 10. If you have two, you got a shot. And I still believe LeBron can play at a top 10 level. I like it that they're managing his minutes. I like it that they're saving him early on from himself. If this team can get to the finish line or start line of the playoffs, healthy, reasonably happy, and refreshed, this team is as good as any team out there and has a great chance of winning it all, winning one more chip for LeBron James. This team can defend at the highest of levels. It was without Jared Vanderbilt, maybe its best defender, on Tuesday. I look down this roster and I say, I got two of the top ten. I got Austin Reeves, who's becoming what I call a near star. Maybe not a star star, but a near star. Close enough to give you a legit big three. Laker Nation. Hachimura really impressed me down the stretch last year. He's he's a player. He's a baller. He's got an NBA body and plays with NBA force. Tari and Prince, they've added. High-level defender. Big shot taker and maker, as we saw on Tuesday. Christian Wood, I've always liked. I know he's bounced around. He just knows how to play basketball. He knows how to score the basketball. He had his moments on Tuesday night at Denver. Cam Reddish has an NBA body. I loved him at Duke, and I think LeBron will get the very best out of him at six feet, eight inches tall. Jackson Hayes is so long and so athletic and runs the court so well. I think he will contribute at a very high level. So I look back 
at what happened Tuesday night. And here we win again. I look back at the biggest question facing this team that still boggles my mind, but I still say this glass is half full, not half empty. We're talking about Anthony Davis, AD, as I say, sometimes always disappearing. Or as I called him on Twitter the other night, maybe he's the new Ant-Man, as in lowercase Ant-Man, as in sometimes plays with the impact of a six-foot, ten-inch ant. I can't explain it. In my career, no superstar I have closely observed can play so dominantly and yet so quietly all in the same game. Never seen anything like it before, but I still say glass half full. The other night, he opens up in the first half with 17 points against Joker. The reigning finals MVP, obviously. Most people concede he's the best player in the game. 17 the first half, that will work. But I look at the rebound column, What? wait, only one rebound in the first half? How can you be 6'10 and 7 foot long wingspan and be so much quicker than Joker? and come up with one rebound for an entire first half of a game that you said would be a statement game, a game that you, Anthony Davis, said we are extremely motivated for because Denver coach Michael Malone had taken pot shots at you through the offseason, had said, we are at their championship parade in Denver, we are the Lakers' daddy on the McAfee show. Michael Malone joked he's got breaking news because He says, don't tell anybody, but I'm going to retire now. Taking a shot at LeBron, dropping his little retirement bombshell soon after the Game 4 sweep in Los Angeles, as you recall. LeBron had to drop that to take a little bit of the focus off what had happened because LeBron in those four fourth quarters of four winnable games against the Denver Nuggets, soon-to-be champions, Four straight times, you're right there in the fourth quarter, and LeBron shot seven of 23 in the combined four fourth quarters, a combined one of 10 from three. That's why they lost. Simple as that. But LeBron, shrewdly operating, had to take the focus and onus off that and say, maybe maybe that was it for me. Oh, so that becomes the new narrative and the new story, and Michael Malone was flat out making fun of LeBron James whom he assistant coached, by the way, in Cleveland once upon a time. So AD says, we're extremely motivated. Bron and I have talked about it. We can't wait for that opening night. I couldn't tell. I guess you you couldn't wait for the first half, but you could wait for the second. AD came out, as you well know by now, in the second half and gave you zero points. Went 0 for 6 from the floor. O for O from the free throw line because he shot zero free throws. How do you do that? How do you shoot zero when you're seven feet long and you're quicker than the man guarding you? You have to be able to make him foul you and at least get to the free throw line and make three or four. He had made four for four in the first half. I don't get it. I'm going to remind you about AD. Back in the bubble when the Lakers won their last championship, 
he averaged, let me get this right. Let's just do against Denver in the bubble. Remember the Western Conference Finals? They, they beat Denver in five games. Joker wasn't yet Joker. He was, but we just didn't know it yet. AD against Denver in those five games, against Joker in those five games, averaged in the bubble 31-6-3 to Joker's 22-7-5. I think AD outplayed him for five games. I watched AD lead the Lakers even more than LeBron did to their last championship. He has it in him. Through the playoffs last year, AD averaged 28-10-4. and 28-10-4. and four. That'll work. That should get you somewhere. Got you to the Western Conference Finals, and it ultimately got you beaten four straight times because you did not have a closer. I said last year's Lakers should have won or could have won 12 more games. I had 12. I don't have time now. I won't take your time, waste your time to detail all 12. But they were right there with leads were in a commanding position to win 12 games, and they failed all 12 times because they did not have a closer. LeBron, no closer gene. Yet once we got to the playoffs, guess what happened? They began to start this kid named Austin Reeves. And in the playoffs, as a starter for the Los Angeles Lakers, Austin averaged 17 four rebounds and five assists. That will work because he shot 44% from three. And in the four fourth quarters against Denver combined, he made eight of 10 shots, did Austin Reeves, and seven of eight threes. And when it ended, I just said, that kid can close. That kid is fearless. That kid, as he does this little celebration, he's got ice water in veins. That kid's got some moxie some chutzpah, some guts. And I'm thinking, would LeBron let him occasionally try to close the game? Would he let him take bigger shots than he was letting him take against Denver? Because every time you let him take a big shot, he makes a big shot. Maybe he could be the closer. Last year, Schroeder closed some. Schroeder's now a Toronto Raptor, as you know. But they'll be okay without him because Austin Reeves just gets better and better. I've never seen a player get so good so quickly coming from nowhere, Newark, Arkansas, from nowhere, University of Oklahoma, where I watched him for two years after he transferred from Wichita State. He shot 28% from three in his two college years at Oklahoma, 28%. In the playoffs last year, he shot 44%. Go figure. He got his money. He's right on time. Our man on Undisputed, Paul Pierce, has warned me. There's the book out on him now. There's a scouting report. Well, it is his third year in the league, so I don't think he's taking the league by shock. I think there already was some book on him, some scouting report on him, and I just think he's good enough that he'll tear right through whatever defense they try to put on him as they scout him more deeply. I think he's a player. Again, not a star, a near star. But LeBron loves him. LeBron trusts him. That's the kind of player that can take them over the top, as in all the way to the finals, and give them a chance to win the finals. I can't forget what AD did in stretches last year. 
Remember that stretch? It was early last year from about November 13th to December 13th. Talk about going on a tear. 13 games. He averaged 32-14, three assists with two blocks a game. Think about that. Those are best player in basketball numbers. Those are MVP numbers. Then, of course, right on schedule, he hurt his foot. I never could figure out exactly what was wrong. Stress fracture, strain. And he missed 20 games, and then he had to start all over again. But come playoff time, he was pretty great. I believe if they can get reasonably healthy to this year's playoffs, he'll be more than pretty great. I believe LeBron can still play at an extremely high level as he approaches 39 years of age in year 21. As Darvin Ham said in the preseason, he can still freight train, that was the phrase, freight train to the basket like nobody can. That is the God's truth. Even the other night in Denver, freight trains. I, I don't know why he doesn't get any calls. The refs have no, no respect for him. It's almost like Shaq syndrome. Back in the day, Shaq Diesel syndrome, where they're just saying, you're playing bully ball. You don't deserve to go to the foul line. They can't stop you anyway. Just just dunk it. Just, just power up through them, foul or no foul. He deserved to shoot a few free throws the other night, and Denver shot one and missed it. Maybe they don't have respect for him because he's not a very good free throw shooter, especially late-game free throw shooter, but still. A very good player, still a, a backside of the top 10 kind of a player. I'll still put him in my top 10. Still the best passer in basketball. Still highest IQ in basketball. You give me AD when he's right and healthy. You give me LeBron anytime, as long as he's not out of gas. I got a shot. My point to you is, I don't have any hidden agenda here. The point is, they could have been so much better last year if they just had somebody to close. The point is, this team on paper is even better than last year's team that had four real real shots, right there shots against Denver. Four, and couldn't get home because LeBron couldn't close. I believe they could figure that out. I think Austin Reeves could, could figure that out for them. Again, they cut it to three. They cut it to four against Denver the other night. They showed you they can play with Denver. They can play with Phoenix. N- name them. They, they can play with anybody in the East or the West. They are that talented. They are that deep. I didn't even mention Gabe Vincent. I love Gabe Vincent. What, what, what a clutch shooter he was for Miami. I love those Miami teams. I just like what I'm seeing. I'm sticking with my pick. I say the Lakers are going to beat the Celtics in the NBA Finals for no reason other than they're really good. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Let's get to your question, shall we? This is Tim from North Carolina. (laughs) What is the closest you've ever been to being late for Undisputed? Or for that matter, cold pizza, first take, national TV shows I've been on since September 6th of 2004. Here's the God's truth, Tim. Every single day without fail, I think I'm going to be late. Every single day. God knows I should have gone back and counted how many days I've done these shows. Again, September 6th of 2004, for the first 10, 12 years, I barely took any vacation. But every single day, there's a point at, we we start at 6.30 a.m. out here in the Pacific time zone in Los Angeles, but there'll there'll come a point at 6.12, 6.14, 6.15, I'm not going to make it. I'm just, I'm just not going to make it. I'm going to be late. And I have never, ever, ever been late. Not one time have I been late. I've never been early, but I've never been late. I need a deadline. I, I came up in this business writing newspaper columns against deadlines. I, I used to do things in the newspaper business off night games that were inhuman, inconceivable. And I was sometimes inconsolable after deadline passed because it was an abomination what I had just thrown into the newspaper. Off Monday night football games involving the Dallas Cowboys, my days covering them for the Dallas Morning News and Dallas Times Herald, I used to have 15, 20 minutes to write an entire column against deadline. It's gibberish. It's lunacy. It's, it's what, what, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? But it, it was part of the times of what you had to do in the newspaper business to try to survive until they became dinosaurs because of the internet. We had to try to get something in the paper in just enough time to get it on your doorstep by 6 a.m., And it was very difficult when the games are going to, obviously, toward midnight Eastern. So I I lived on deadline. Every day I wrote a newspaper column against some sort of deadline. And now it's to the point where I'm addicted to the deadline, where I need it. I need to feel like I'm late or I'm no good. I need to feel the adrenal rush of I literally have to run from my dressing room on the first floor, around the corner, up the stairs to the second floor, down a longer hallway again, left turn into the studio. I have to run all the way to the studio to get mic'd up because I feel like I'm not going to make it. So, true story, the closest I ever came to actually being late was actually later in a show on Cold Pizza, which was on ESPN2 back in the day, a show we did 
out of a basement studio in the old New Yorker. It's not old, it's still there, but the it's been there a long time. The New Yorker Hotel at 34th and 8th in New York City. This actually happened in early August of, this would be 2004, 5, 2005. It was a Friday, and we had dressing rooms down on the basement floor of the New Yorker that were a long walk or run down a hall from the studio. And we used to have what we we called it first and 10, were our debate segments on cold pizza that morphed into first take, that morphed into undisputed. So... We divided our four segments into first down, second down, third down, very cleverly, fourth down. And one fateful Friday, before fourth down, which comes, obviously, would come at the end of the show, I looked down and realized I had left my notes, and I'm about to discuss my notes, but I left my notes for fourth down in my dressing room. And the clock is ticking, and I'm maybe two minutes away from fourth down. Oh, my God, I got to make a run for it. So I bolt up a short flight of stairs to the right, down the long hall, literally running in my suit, no tie, never wore a tie, my dress shirt. I'm running down the hall, my dress shoes. No Jordans at that point. And I have to run past the green room, which is on my right. And I glanced to my right, and I saw this woman who locked eyes with me and said, hi, as if we knew each other. And I stopped cold. Clock is ticking. And I said, do I know you? And she said, I'm Ernestine. You're who? Ernestine? I don't know any Ernestine. But something about her was captivating. Something told me I needed to at least introduce myself. I'm Skip. She said, oh, I, I know who you are. I said, do you live in New York? She said, yes. And she told me she lived at 51st and 2nd when she actually lived at 52nd and 1st because she was a little nervous at that point because she could tell I was agitated and in an extreme hurry. And she immediately handed me her card. She worked for a PR firm that was representing an actor named Kevin Dillon who had been on cold pizza that morning. And they were still hanging around in the green room. And I said, I'm sorry, I have to run. Great to meet you. Great. Thank you. And I ran to my dressing room. And I, when I returned to the studio, I was about 30 seconds late for the start of fourth down. So I had to run into the live shot of my friend Woody Page, my debate partner then, and Jay Crawford, our moderator already up and running as Jay was introducing the target and frantically looking for me. 
but I dived into my seat and life did go on. And fatefully, that woman became my wife, Ernestine. That's the only time I was ever, quote unquote, late. And now I'm going to have nightmares about being late for Undisputed. This is from Lewis from Tampa. What happens to all your notes after each show? Ah, yes, my hand scribbled cheat sheet of notes that I do for just about every topic. I've got, if you can see, I've got notes upon notes upon notes. I've got notes. I've got notes. I write the notes so I can memorize, flash memorize what I'm about to say. So it makes me think through and it makes me visualize the actual words on paper that become emblazoned in my psyche so that I can reach for these thoughts on the fly, especially when I'm doing the live debate on Undisputed. But I have reams of these scribbled notes that nobody could read except me. Nobody could cheat off except me. They're cheat sheets only for me. I used to kid my man Shannon Sharp across the table sometimes these things, the air conditioning would blow them across and he'd look at them and say, what the hell is this? And I would say, well, at least you can't cheat off me because there's no way you could read any of it. And he'd just say, I, I don't even know what this hieroglyphics. Yep. That's what I write. Hieroglyphics. I write in some other language only my eye and brain can comprehend. So some of these sheets become semi-permanent because if it's my notes for a Jordan-LeBron debate, a GOAT debate, I keep them in my dressing room because all the facts, even though they are definitely emblazoned in my memory, I can glance over them if somehow we're going to revive that debate because of some breaking story or somebody said something about LeBron's the GOAT. Laughable. And all of the pertinent facts I have scribbled down on a cheat sheet that that is now almost, you could say, a permanent part of my dressing room. I don't have any filing cabinet. I have them filed on my little table upon which we put the show together every morning about 4.15 a.m. out here in the Pacific time zone. Those, maybe LeBron's struggles against Denver, I've kept those as a cheat sheet. Dak's struggles in general, I've kept a bunch of those notes that my man Tyler Korn has helped me assemble. But the majority of the notes I scribble, truth be told, they go in the trash immediately upon the conclusion of every day's undisputed while I'm sitting at the desk in semi-darkness as across the studio floor, Colin Coward has taken over and begun his show, The Herd. So I'm listening to Colin and I'm sifting through my notes and most of them are completely and utterly disposable because they're, they're now qualified as yesterday's notes. So I, I don't want to keep them. I'm, I'm not going to sell them on eBay, even though somebody might pay for these because they, they are something. Because 
they might be able to take it to a handwriting expert, get deep into my psyche, or maybe some linguistic expert who who might believe that I I've actually created a new language. Maybe I have. I don't know. Only I can read it. But I sift through and I'm just throwing page after page right into the trash can that sits right at my feet at the debate, excuse me, the debate desk every day on Undisputed. Sheet after sheet, trash, 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 next, 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 on to tomorrow. They're only valuable to me, and they only work for me to help me memorize my thoughts for the debates. Now allow me to tell you why I cried during the final scene of Killers of the Flower Moon, which I saw the day it opened out here in Los Angeles last Friday. And also allow me to tell you why I might not at all be objective about how great a movie this is. I I say all-time great, yet the subject matter is deeply dear to my heart, and I'll tell you why. I will give you up front, the movie is maybe 30 minutes too long, three and a half hours. But I did not look at my watch. For me, when it's Martin Scorsese writing and then directing De Niro and DiCaprio, What's another 30 minutes? That's just me. So, in case you don't know, and I will try to tiptoe around any spoiler alerts if you do plan to see this movie, the story is about the Osage. One tribe smart enough, when it relocated, to my home state of Oklahoma, the only tribe smart enough to do it its own way, to negotiate with the United States government to actually buy the rights to the land, including the mineral rights to the land in what sort of north central or northeast central Oklahoma. In this story, told so beautifully by Martin Scorsese is about how many of these Osage literally struck it rich with the oil that was discovered on the land that they owned. About how 40 or 50 of these Osage Become, had, had become some of the wealthiest people in the world. And finally, about how white men began to infiltrate the tribe by marrying Osage women, and how some of those white men began to do in their wives, some by poisoning, to acquire the, what are called head rights, mineral rights, oil rights, and oil money of the wife 
and how many white men murdered a number of Osage men and women to get their oil rights. As one white man says early in the movie, a man would sooner get arrested here for kicking a dog than killing an Indian. I'll say it again. A man would sooner get arrested here for kicking a dog than killing an Indian. I believe that was a fact in the town of Fairfax, Oklahoma, in which this story takes place. And by the way, it's a true story based on a best-selling book by a New York Times author. The plight of the red man in this country has always torn me apart because I grew up in Oklahoma, which means red man. What white people did to the indigenous people who lived on this soil before white people got here has always been a great American tragedy to me. So white people came to this land in part for religious freedom. Then many of those same white people convinced themselves it was God's will that they literally declare war on these quote-unquote savages and literally took their land away from them. And by the way, why are these indigenous people called Indians? Oh, the painful irony of this. This has always made me laugh until I want to cry. When Columbus landed in the Caribbean in 1492, he was so lost that he thought he had discovered a passage to the east, to India. So he called these natives Indians, Indians, as if they're from India? It's lunacy, pathetic lunacy. Our armies methodically defeated one tribe after another. One of the last standing was, I believe, the greatest mounted army ever using mostly bows and arrows. I'm talking about the Comanches who ruled the whole middle of this country, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, up into Nebraska, and even up toward the Dakotas. The Comanches led by Quanta Parker, one of the greatest warriors ever, whose mother, by the way, was a white Comanche captive taken from a fort near San Antonio named Cynthia Ann Parker. If, if you want to read a book you cannot put down, if you want to get chilled to the bone, 
read Empire of the Summer Moon. It keeps getting optioned for movie rights. Maybe it'll get made someday soon. What an epic story this would be up on screen. And what a bloodbath it would be. This book details the atrocities committed on both sides, by both sides, by the Comanches, by the U.S. Army. But remember, I'm sympathetic here because we, quote unquote, started it and they tried to finish it, the Comanches. Ultimately, we finished them. We finished five other tribes in the deep south, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi. Five tribes defeated and forced to move to the unsettled territory of Oklahoma. These called the five civilized tribes, Choctaw, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Seminole, Creek. They were called the Muscogee in Georgia, but Creek in Oklahoma. They're all forced to march from the southeast portions of this country, from Florida and Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi, march all the way to Oklahoma on what became known as the Trail of Tears. Thousands and thousands of them died on the way from disease and various other issues that they had to face. Then they were forced to live on reservations in what became known as Indian Territory. I believe some in Washington had the best interests of these tribes in mind and hoped that they could sort of learn the white man's way and live as white people lived and live well and comfortably, but it didn't often turn out that way. So as a kid, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother on my father's side, who lived in Okmulgee, Oklahoma, a little town up toward Tulsa from Oklahoma City, where I grew up. Okmulgee was the capital of the Creek Nation. Several times I visited the old Capitol building of the Creek Nation. right in the middle of downtown Okmulgee, if you can call it a downtown. It's now a museum. I could spend a week in there. I used to spend a day in there as a kid looking at the old pictures of the way they were, the way they should be. And as a little kid, I always wanted to be an Indian brave. It was deep in my heart. I wanted to be an Indian brave. And even now, as weird as this might sound, I, I believe I was an Indian brave in my past life. Don't, don't ask me to explain. I just believe it with all my heart and soul. My father owned and operated this little hole-in-the-wall barbecue place south side of Oklahoma City called the Hickory House, and his right-hand man, the driving force of that business, the guy who kept it together was named James Jackson. 
he was full-blooded. I, I think Cherokee. I'm not sure which tribe, but I think it was Cherokee, but full-blooded. Spent a lot of time at our house. Came over on holidays. I got close to James. I learned a lot about the good and bad old days from James. One of my best friends growing up, still one of my best friends in the world, is Perry Littlepage. He's a fourth Chickasaw because his mother Wanda was half Chickasaw. Her mother was full blood. Now Perry's father was white, but the last thing Perry's father wanted to do was poison his mother because Wanda was simply the sweetest woman and best mom I ever knew, ever knew. May she rest in peace. My other closest friend, Craig Humphreys, now a radio legend, sports radio legend in Oklahoma City, has a little Choctaw blood from his father's side. He and I have talked often about that. So I was steeped in life after the Trail of Tears, life in Indian territory. You might say even got in some way into my blood. Even my senior year of high school, high school basketball, second round of the Tulsa Memorial Tournament of Champions. My big city team from Northwest Classen in Oklahoma City played Pahuska. Believe it or not, the capital of the Osage Nation, upon which Killers of the Flower Moon is based. Pahuska. I won't give away the end of the movie, obviously. But I will tell you this. When the main character's obit is read aloud, I was shocked by who read it aloud. Sitting in that darkened theater here in Los Angeles, I fought and fought and fought back tears until I finally gave up and let it go. And I cried. Let's get back to your questions. This is Gregory from San Diego. If you don't want Belichick as the Cowboys head coach, what coach do you want? No, I'd still take Mike McCarthy over Belichick as I detailed last podcast. Look, I remain a big Dan Quinn fan. I think he's the unofficial head coach of the Cowboys as we speak, the unofficial motivator of the Cowboys, even though he's just the defensive coordinator. He did a great job in Atlanta. He had Tom Brady and Belichick down, as you recall, 28-3 to in the Super Bowl, and you know what happened. And then everything began to fall apart for Dan as the head coach in Atlanta. I'm very thankful to have him as our defensive coordinator year after year when I think he's gone for a head coaching vacancy. I don't know how much Jerry pays him, but it must be pretty good because he's worth it. 
I don't know what Jerry has promised him in the way of ever becoming the Cowboy head coach, but it's, it's got to be some sort of verbal agreement of some sort. You'll get, you, you'll be first on the list. I, I don't know. But even last year, I dreamed of having Dan Quinn as the head coach and still running the defense with Kellen Moore still running the offense, but it didn't happen. Kellen Moore is gone. Thankfully, Dan Quinn is still there. But I've mentioned this before, and I'm speaking straight from my heart. There's a big part of me that wants Mike McCarthy to fall flat on his face this year, which would require my Cowboys to stumble and fall on their face masks to the point that they miss the playoffs because I think that's what would be required to get Mike McCarthy out of there. Obviously, he's now calling the plays, but I still believe when we do win, we win in spite of him and sometimes in spite of our starting quarterback. But I'm going to say this again. My dream, what what I believe is, is meant to be, is for Deion Sanders to return to Dallas to coach the Dallas Cowboys. Would I love to see it next year? Yes, I would, but it would require swallowing some serious pride for me every day on Undisputed because I would have to witness the downfall of my team and my predictions all in the name of Dion to Dallas. I'm going to say it again. Deion Sanders is a flat-out force of nature. I get it. They lost 42-6. to at Oregon. I get it. They're up 29 to nothing on Stanford and blew it 29 to nothing at halftime. I understand they are, as we speak, the Colorado Buffaloes leading the nation in penalties. I got that. This team was one and 11 a year ago. Dion had to turn this team upside down on the fly. 86 players gone from last year. They shocked TCU at TCU. They, they beat Nebraska, straight up beat Nebraska at home. They came back on Colorado State. And it was a comeback for the ages, thanks to Shadur Sanders, obviously Deion's son at quarterback. They at least won a moral victory against USC because they played the heck out of USC in a home shootout. They did not play well, but they did beat Arizona State on the road. That counts for a team that was 1-11 last year. They are 4-3. They do have a tough game Saturday at UCLA. They're 17.5-point underdogs at the Rose Bowl. Can they win? I give him a shot just because Shadur, to me, is still a Heisman candidate. He's still a candidate to be the first pick in the draft. Despite 42 to 6 and blowing 29 to nothing, Deion Sanders is a leadership force. He leads the nation in charisma, he's a spiritual powerhouse. He's a bottomless pit of of teaching wisdom, wisdom 
He's been there and done all that. He's simply the greatest cornerback by far ever who has decided he wants to coach. No player that great ever wants to coach. It's just too hard. There's too many headaches. It's not worth it. This is the rarest of humans. Deion Sanders was meant to coach my Cowboys. He played for my Cowboys. He went from helping San Francisco prevail over the Cowboys one year to signing with Dallas the next and putting them back over the top into the Super Bowl to win the last Super Bowl they ever won. Deion Sanders and the Dallas Cowboys would be a match made in Super Bowl heaven. Heaven. This is Vince from Minnesota who asks, are you good at sports trivia? This question got me and still gets me because I I don't know. I might be, but I've never participated in a trivia contest because I, I don't want or need to. I don't study trivia. I don't memorize trivia. I meet people occasionally who say, do you know who was the starting second baseman? For, you know, like these trick trivia questions. No, I don't know those. Sometimes I do because I just know. The point is that I'm not interested in the obscure stat or the arcane fact. I do know a lot of trivia naturally by osmosis because I lived it. I was there. I covered that. I remember that and that and that that most people don't because it became part of my psyche because I witnessed it and I wrote and talked about it. I started covering the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 10 in Miami. I know so much Super Bowl trivia just because it's common knowledge to me, but I, I didn't go look it up in books. I, I lived it. I know it because I experienced it. I covered the 1980 Miracle on Ice in Lake Placid. So I know some things about it that maybe you wouldn't. But in general, all I really care about is the now. I live for tomorrow. Right now, I'm living for tonight. Taping this on a Wednesday afternoon, and I can't wait for the two NBA games tonight so that I can deep dive into them tomorrow and undisputed. I will tear them apart through the night, overnight, into the very early morning when I get up at 2 o'clock in the morning to run on the treadmill, and I will be reading about those two basketball games. And I'll be reading about what the Dallas Cowboys said today. I'll be absorbing the now for tomorrow. 
tomorrow will become my trivia. But I, I, because of my life and my job, I'm trying to see the future and not the past. So all the trick questions, you got me. But on vast trivia knowledge, I might have you. I'm going to close by getting something off my chest, if you will allow. If you will suffer me this. There are two animal terms that I grew up with who have been turned completely upside down on their heads. And it amazes and amuses me. And I need to get it out of my system. I've never seen anything quite like this. And I marvel at it because I'm such a student of language and what we could do with two animal terms, turning them from day to night, night to day. When I was growing up, heck, into my 20s and 30s, and I don't know, into my 40s, the term goat, lowercase g-o-a-t, referred to the player you blamed for the loss. The goat was the reason you lost the game. He or she was the goat of the game because they blew it. They dropped the ball. They missed the pass. What, what, whatever. They were the goat of the game because they screwed up the most. There have been so many memorable goats in every sport. My man Jackie Smith in the Super Bowl that I covered in Miami, Super Bowl 13, Dallas, Pittsburgh. Jackie Smith, salt of the earth. You won't find a better guy. Hall of Fame tight end. Great player for a team I originally loved, the old St. Louis Cardinals. Came to Dallas very late in his career. In the midst of a back-and-forth spectacular Super Bowl between the two most combined talented teams I ever saw in the same field, just stocked top to bottom with Hall of Famers on both sides. Game that wound up 35-31 Pittsburgh. Roger Staubach had a wide-open Jackie Smith in the end zone and tried to float him the football, tried to just pinpoint it and almost just wrist-flick it just toss him the football as as finely and nicely as he could. Toss him the most catchable pass of his career. And Jackie Smith let it go right through his hands and hit him right in the breadbasket and fall on the ground. He just missed it. It was the easiest catch of his career, and he became the goat of the game. He dropped the ball. It's his fault, says Cowboy Nation. There are a lot of other faults going on in the game, including the referees, but I won't, don't get me started on that. And by the way, in the end, the truth was Terry Bradshaw and Lynn Swan and John Stallworth and that steel curtain defense, that, that, that team was just a little bit better 
than my Cowboys, just a little bit better. So I give you that. But the goat of the game was poor Jackie Smith. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, in the age of the internet, the term GOAT gets uppercased, capital G, capital O, capital A, capital T. GOAT becomes the greatest of all times. Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest of all times. Uh, you're the GOAT. Oh, so we got an acronym going of capital GOAT, which means the the exact opposite of what I used to know as lowercase goat. So we took lowercase goat, we blame you, into uppercase goat. You're the greatest ever at your sport or your endeavor. Lil Wayne, the goat of rappers. You're the greatest of all time. Oh, oh, okay. I got to wrap my head around that. How did we go from lowercase goat to uppercase goat It's just a goat. It's just an animal term. I don't even know how the original lowercase goat became yours to blame. Which brings me to dog. We got goat, now we got dog. In my childhood, my high school days, my college days, heck, into my professional life days, 20s and 30s, Dog was an incredibly negative sports term, as in they laid down like a bunch of dogs. Those dogs, those dogs, those dirty dogs. Dogs was a term for for a bunch of players who quit. They're a bunch of dogs. You dog. You dog you. It was as negative a sports term as I've ever heard. It was right there with lowercase goat, is dog. What a bunch of dying dogs. And all of a sudden, that term morphed into today's term, which I love. He's got that dog in him. That team's got a bunch of dogs, as in a bunch of ballers, a bunch of gamers, a bunch of mentally and physically tough guys who will not quit. All of a sudden, that dog in you became the exact polar opposite of those dogs. They laid down and died like dogs. What? How how did dogs become that dog? I've never seen anything like it. Is it just me? Or did goat go to goat and Dog go to that dog. I've never seen anything like it. But I must admit, I love it. Who knew? That is it for episode 86. Thanks to you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to my man Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern, The Skip Bayless Show every week.